Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guest today is Thomas Savage, who is Research Manager at the Center for State Fiscal Reform at the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC. We will discuss unfunded public pension liabilities in the 50 states. Tom researches and writes on state tax and fiscal policy, applying knowledge learned in the classroom and working in the policy world. Tom, welcome. Thanks for having me on. As we get started, would you share with us any conflict of interest information in terms of your conflict of interest or that of the organization, any source funding or anything that our listeners should know about? Um, no, I don't believe we have any conflict of interest. ALEC is a 501c3 organization, uh, nonprofit. Um, and our goal is to educate the general public on various state and local policy issues. Um, and as a part of that, I also I fall under the 501c3 category. Um, someone is as someone who educates on these particular issues. And my area of spe- particular specialization um, is in tax and fiscal policy. Thank you. And. M- We're going to be discussing the ALEC, again, American Legislative Exchange Council, which is the nonprofit that you were referring to, and its 2021 35-page report on state pension funds titled Unaccountable and Unaffordable. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Let's start with a really basic concept. What are we referring to? When we say public pension liabilities, is that a uniform definition across the board for purposes of our discussion, for purposes of the states? Sure, definitely. That's it's pretty much a it's pretty much a uniform definition across the states. A pension liability is basically a promise um, the state has guaranteed to public employees. Um, for this particular benefit that they would receive upon retirement. Most public pension plans are what we call a defined benefit um, system, where upon retirement, um, states receive a certain amount of of benefits, um, and that is based on things like their final average salary, um, any cost of living adjustments, and any accrued overtime and you know that calculations vary from plan to plan within the same state and they vary um, of course across the states but generally it is a promise to pay out a portion of a retired public employee's salary um, through their retirement years and in some cases um, in some cases if a retired public employee passes away during a certain period of time, those benefits are extended to their spouse. And then the next or the modifier to our discussion, which is unfunded public pension liabilities. How is that? So unfunded pension liabilities, that refers to pension promises that aren't already covered by existing pension assets. So most pension plans have a trust um, in which assets from 
contributions from taxpayers as well as contributions from public employees go into this trust. Um, they're invest they, those assets are invested to help grow the to help grow the pension fund. And you take that number, say the dollar value of those assets, subtract the liabilities and any remaining liabilities that are not covered by the assets are considered unfunded liabilities. What does the report reveal, let's say, the big picture revelation, and then perhaps we can dig in a little bit more uh, and take a look at the report itself? Sure. So our report finds that unfunded state pension liabilities across the states um, total $8.28 trillion, and that accounts for public pension plans managed by the state, managed by state governments for all 50 states. And that's roughly, so $8.28 trillion is a big number. To put that into perspective, that's about $25,000 for every man, woman, and child in the United States, or about $100,000 for a family of four. And um, the reason why people should be concerned about that, like they should be concerned about government debt, is because um, government debt represents taxes taxes that are owed in the future. Because at the end of the day, when governments guarantee these benefits, it's the taxpayers that also that have to foot the bill. And so when we're thinking about large pension debt, um, especially in states like Illinois, California, New Jersey, New York, as these pension liabilities grow, spending, you know, government spending elsewhere gets crowded out to pay out these pension promises. Because as we show in the report, um, you'll see in section one on page, uh, page eight, figure seven, we look at the various legal protections uh, that these pensions have. And basically, most states are obligated to pay out these promises, even in the case of economic downturn or any sort of fiscal pro fiscal crisis, the states are still on the hook for paying out these promises. So we want to make sure that the states are able to keep their promises to public employees, which they've promised to have a fully funded retirement benefit. And they also have to keep promises to taxpayers, you know, specifically that they promised taxpayers that they'll have affordable public services that are of good quality. Figure seven, page eight is color coordinated. And so it looks like most of the country is blue mm -hmm. with a little bit of the other colors, a little bit of gray, orange, and yellow, uh, and green. A green seems to be the lowest in terms of the number of states with green. What importance, if any, do these protections have in terms of our discussion? Does it matter that it's common law, contractual versus constitutional amendment? Oh, yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. That's a great point. So, of, like, it, it shows some variation of the strength of these promises. As you mentioned, the common law contractual approach 
Uh, that's a that's a phrase from uh, Greg Menis at the Pew Charitable Trust Center. And um, the common law contractual approach basically says that a pension is a promise made to public employees by the state as part of their contract, which it is stated in their contract. And by not funding these and by not paying out these promises, it constitutes a breach of contract. Um, although there may or may not be um, state statutes or different or various other protections like judicial precedent. Um, if you see the states in orange is the constitutional amendment or provision, that's the strongest, um, that's the strongest legal protection um, among the states. And when it's enshrined in the constitution, it's, it's basically set in stone. You know, even if the state runs out runs out of money for everything else, it still has to pay out these pension promises. And those states include Alaska, Arizona, Louisiana, Michigan, New Mexico, New York. Those are, you know, those states have it in their constitution, and Illinois, excuse me, there was a, those states have it enshrined in their constitution that the state has to pay out these pension promises. And any changes to those benefits would constitute a breach of contract. There was actually a very large uh, case. There was a big case in Illinois a couple of years ago where they tried to adjust the the state had attempted to adjust cost of living uh, calculations for existing retirees. Uh, the public employees sued the state and won in court because the courts found that it violated that constitutional protection. So with that in mind, we have to assume that states cannot back out of these pension promises. And we want states to have a, and state leaders to have a mindset that, you know, these promises are basically set in stone. And if they want to make reforms, these reforms have to apply to new hires and they can't make too many changes to existing um, to benefits applied to current employees that are vested. Let's go back to the first map. Uh, let me see what page that was on. Okay, that, so that's figure one. one. Oh, I'm sorry, that was uh, page two. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yes, thank you. Page two, figure one. Uh, so this gives us a picture of the health, as it were, of these unfunded pension liabilities from best funded to least funded, color coordinated, I'm sorry, color coded, uh, so that the darker the color, the less funding we're looking at. Is that, am I understanding that right? Yep, that's correct. And there are several different ways to measure the health of a pension plan, which We'll walk through, but you know the first the first table, figure one, table one is total unfunded pension liabilities in the fifty states, and it takes just a look at you know how the dollar amount of the pension promises that are not currently covered by pension trust assets, and that's where we get that eight point two eight trillion dollar number. You know, that's $8.28 trillion of, of benefits that have been promised to public employees, but do not have 
a dollar amount to to fund it. And so states must come up with that, you know, must come up with the money. To kind of put things into perspective, um, the bottom 10 states, so that's California, Illinois, Texas, New York, Ohio, New Jersey, Florida, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Massachusetts, those, those bottom 10 states, that makes up, um, that makes up $1.1 trillion. That makes up $1.14 trillion and a large amount, excuse me, actually, let me, I just had to correct that. That's actually $4.9 trillion. I, I, I had to fix my calculations there. That makes up about $4.9 trillion of the bottom 10 states, those states, $4.9 trillion dollars. And almost just under 60% of all unfunded liabilities are in these 10 states. So that is more than half of the lion's share borne by these states. California, Illinois, Texas, New York, Ohio, New Jersey, Florida, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Massachusetts. Those are the, those are the states where we see the most unfunded liabilities. But if you look at the other end of it, say Vermont has the has the lowest total unfunded liabilities, that actually they're still at fourteen point four billion dollars. So it's you know it's not small numbers. That's not small numbers there. One of the things that struck me when I first looked at that was California. Are they mm-hmm. the worst for unfunded pension liabilities? Was were you well, expecting that when you did that analysis? Um, so California does have the largest number of unfunded liabilities, and actually, this is the sixth edition of unaccountable and unaffordable. And almost every year, California comes in, you know, dead last and hundreds of billions of dollars higher than, you know, than than even than the state in number forty nine. California is consistently ranked 50th in this report um, for all years measured. And what I want to I want to take a little a little bit of an aside and note that in our reports we actually um, we actually challenge some of the accounting assumptions in public pensions. And so if you were to go and cross reference this number with say in the numbers officially posted in actuarial reports and financial uh, financial reports, the annual comprehensive financial reports, our numbers are different. And the key distinct the key distinction between us and other and those official reports is the use of something called the discount rate. The discount rate measures um, the difference uh, measures the level of risk in uh, those pension liabilities, those pension promises. And as we spoke a little bit earlier, you know, we mentioned that states have strong legal protections for those pension promises. So what we do is we use a discount rate that are, that reflects the state's inability to back out of those promises. So our risk-free discount rate is based on the average of the 
10-year and 20-year U.S. Treasury bonds because those are generally considered a risk-free asset. Now, compare that to what's used in the official state government documents. They, um, they are, under current government accounting standards, they are allowed to use a higher discount rate for the funded liabilities, and they're allowed to use a, and then have to use a lower discount rate like the Treasury curve or the municipal bond index on their unfunded liabilities. And it kind of splits the difference and they meet in the middle. And so what we found, and this is in a chart on page 11, figure 10, the discount rate comparisons, the average discount rate for public pension plans was 7.18%, whereas our risk-free discount rate this year because of um, variations in the U.S. Treasury yield, and that, you know, that varies year over year, in, the, in this report measured, it was 1.13%. So that stark difference, 7.18%, 1.13%, you know, even in a a case with a discount rate, changes in a tenth of of a percent will mean the difference of hundreds of millions of dollars in liabilities. And there is just such a stark gap between the discount rates used by pension plans and the discount rate used here in the ALEC report. So our numbers are a bit higher than what the states officially post in these um, in these actuarial valuations, but we're doing so to reflect the state's inability to back out of those promises, and then it also creates a common scale by which to measure liabilities across the states because you know different discount rates apply to different uh, pension plans and they vary from state to state. This way, we have a common scale to measure unfunded liabilities in a given year. Let's go back to that number that you mentioned for the average person. I think you said it was $25,000 worth of debt per person for across yes. the board for all people in the country, presumably babies, newly born babies coming to the world with this debt in that particular state. Did I understand that right? Yep, that's, that is correct. That's, so we took the total population of the United States and um, we took the, that 8.28 trillion number, divided it by the total population of the United States for that year. And that is, uh, that's fiscal year 2020 um, that we were using. Uh, fiscal year 2020, and that's roughly $25,000. But you'll see on figure two, table two, that varies from state to state. Sometimes it's a bit more, um, especially in the bottom states, and uh, it's it's more than 25000 But in states that have um, larger, that have growing populations, as well as states that have made pension reforms, that number is much lower than 25000 um, so you look at the number one state, Tennessee, um, Tennessee is, has been a state that is, you know, experiencing a lot of growth in the past couple of years. So the population is growing. So that liability is spread out over more people. And at the same time, they also reformed their pension systems starting in fiscal year 2014, where they have what's called a hybrid plan, where they have a smaller defined benefit pension which it's you know what we typically think of pensions 
and then in a, and then in addition to that smaller defined benefit plan, uh, they also get a 401k that they can save into. And so by that hybrid, by enacting that hybrid plan, they were able to lower unfunded liabilities across the board for taxpayers. So that combination of a growing population and you know making the necessary reforms to lower unfunded liabilities have helped keep their you know their unfunded liability per capita burden relatively low but it's still at $8,511.92 just shy of $8,512 what does that mean in terms of the real debt and I'm trying, I'm struggling for the words what what is the likelihood that say for example people in Tennessee are going to have to pay $8,500 is that over their lifetimes is there a finite period how does that debt burden work sure you know so it's it's not necessarily that the government is going to send them a bill and say, hey, you guys owe us this much money to help fund the pension problem. It occurs in a much more subtle way. It's those unfunded liabilities need to be funded. So what happens, you know, what occurs is that the state starts diverting money away from other spending programs to help pay down those pension promises. And, you know, people start to notice it you know, is as the government as government spending on other things, like say government spending on education, you know, they see they see education, you know, quality of education going down. They see, you know, they notice more potholes in the road, you know, because infrastructure spending is down and just little things like that. You know, it's they're not going to get a they're not going to get a bill in the mail, but what they are going to no start noticing is that the government is going to spend less and less on those key public services but at the same time their tax their overall tax bill is going to go up and that's exactly what residents of Illinois have been seeing for the past 10 15 years you know it's it's not that the state's sending them a bill every year and saying you know hey here's what you guys need to chip in to keep our pension fund solvent but they are noticing that their taxes are going up but they're not seeing the quality of their public services go up. They're not seeing, you know, increased availability. They're just, they're feeling, you know, they're feeling the crush of higher taxes, you know, but people, you know, they wonder where is this money going and more and more of what the, of tax revenue is being used to fund these pension promises. What priority do they have these pension promises in terms of a state's fiscal good health, if you will. So if you have states, or as we've had in the past, cities that have filed for bankruptcy, there's been a lot of talk about California being on the edge of bankruptcy. What happens if a state should end up taking that route? What happens to these liabilities? That's a really interesting question. Um, actually, you know, as we saw with the Detroit bankruptcy, you know, cities can access the U.S. bankruptcy code, but as actually as current bankruptcy law stands, um, 
state governments, there is no chapter in the U.S. Bankruptcy Code for state governments. So there is a lot of uncertainty of what occurs when a state defaults on, on its debts and can't pay its promises. Um, we've seen a little bit of that with Puerto Rico and the Puerto Rico bankruptcy, which is, is um, it's a U.S. territory, so the legal distinctions are a little different from a state government, but um, that certainly um, that certainly kind of it it's a huge uh, it could set precedence for states looking to restructure their debt in the future. You know, it's Puerto Rico went into went to a lot of pension debt and they issued what was called pension obligation bonds, which um, they sell bonds in the bond market. Investors purchase the bonds and then the money that the state earns from selling those bonds, they then put into the pension fund and invest and try to get a higher rate of return, um, get a higher rate of return than the interest that they owe on the bonds, which to put that into comparison to say like, you know, someone saving for their retirement, it would be like, it would be like taking out a mortgage to fund your 401k and then trying to beat the interest rate on the mortgage um, with your with your asset returns. It's incredibly risky. Um, and, you know, Puerto Rico is not alone in doing this. Illinois and Connecticut have both issued pension obligation bonds. And in the past couple of years with the historically low interest rates, it's kind of this uh, – it's like a siren's call, you know, it's low interest rate. It's like, you know, you can easily beat the market. You can easily beat these low interest rates. You know, it's like, there are all these promises that it's a sure thing, but you know, Illinois and Connecticut both did this, you know, with the promise of good market returns and they sold these pension obligation bonds and, you know, they sold them in late 2006, early 2007. And then of course, as we know, the market crashed in fall of 2007 and, the recession continued through, you know, the recession continued through the years that followed. But of course, you know, with these bonds that they sell, you know, they're still on the hook to pay the debt, even if the market returns, you know, aren't great. There's, you know, they're still on the hook to pay this debt. So it's a very dangerous thing. Um, and you mentioned California. I think um, California is definitely, definitely not in a good spot, but I would say a state that's, you know, maybe in even in an even worse position is Illinois. Um, Illinois actually, um, in 2020, um, during the market downturn, you know, caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, um, you know, they they were anticipating high revenue shortfalls. They were worried about defaults, um, and actually they. Uh, ended up borrowing money from the Federal Reserve's emergency lending program, um, but you know the thing is with with uh, borrowing money from the Federal Reserve, they have three years to pay back the debt, and then um, if they don't pay back the debt under the CARES Act, it says that the Treasury will cover the Fed's losses, and of course when the Fed loaned Illinois this money, you know there were no basically no strings attached. They were allowed to borrow at below market interest rates and the Fed didn't require that they make any sort of changes so that this wouldn't happen again in the future. It just kind of kicked the can down the road. And now meanwhile, you know, Illinois, Illinois is on the hook to pay these pension promises. They 
have hundreds of they have billions of dollars um, in pension obligation bonds that you know they issue every year and it's you know eventually something has to give and I think you know Illinois may, may be the next case of uh, state default and what occurs when states cannot pay out those promises but as I mentioned a little earlier in the show Illinois has a constitutional guarantee to pay out those pension promises. So in the case of a government default where Illinois can't pay its bills, they will still have to pay out those pension promises even if they can't pay for anything else. When we look at the map, this we're still on figure two, table two, page three. One of the things that is curious to me looking at it is that the state at the bottom is not the state that was at the bottom in the other map that we looked at which in that case was California in this case mm -hmm. it's Alaska so those numbers are a little bit different between the two maps uh, tell us a little bit about why that is sure and that's kind of a case where um, Alaska, you know, Alaska just has a has a smaller population than Illinois or California, and so with a smaller population, that debt's spread out a little more. But as you'll see, um, Alaska, in terms of total debt, they're in they're ranked thirteenth from the top, so they're they have way less total debt than um, than say California or Illinois, but. Because of that, you know, that smaller population, that debt is spread, that debt is spread out over fewer people. And that's, you know, it's, I love that you point that out because, you know, that's why we take these different approaches in section one. We have, you know, we have about, you know, we have about nine pages of different, um, of different rankings. And we do it because there's, you know, there are multiple ways of looking at the health of a pension fund. And it's, you know, you look at unfunded liabilities, you look at those costs per person. But of course, these two don't tell the whole story. Um, and, you know, one thing like this unfunded liabilities map, it shows how much that how much of a debt burden may fall upon an individual taxpayer. Um, but it also it doesn't tell the story of uh, reform and fund health. So like Alaska, you know, that's kind of just it's being being a victim of circumstance that there are, you know, you know, there are more there are fewer people in Alaska than in Illinois. And that's why that debt burden is spread. You know, it's spread out over fewer residents. But Alaska has actually made a lot of amazing reforms over the past 20 years um, that have helped it, you know, really bring it closer to fund solvency than many other states Particularly, they um, implemented a defined contribution, so a 401k-style pension plan, about 15, 17 years ago, and um, closed the original defined benefit plan to new hires. And by um, by doing that, they've helped reduce their unfunded, you know, pension liabilities by billions of dollars. Um, so even though that number doesn't look great on figure two, table two, they've actually, they've done a lot of great work and they've done a lot of work making sure one, that the promises they had made, you know, the promises that they make to their public employees are fully funded. Um, and two, you know, 
by making sure the costs remain relatively low for taxpayers. Recently, actually, in this legislative session, there were calls to reopen the defined benefit plan, which, um, you know, which fortunately they did not go like that. That bill did not go through, um, which, you know, while it sounds good in the short term, oh, we'll get, you know, we'll get higher benefit payments that would threaten seriously threaten fund solvency and it would place an even greater burden on taxpayers there in Alaska. Um, Because, again, like, you know, you'll see that Alaska ranked 17th in funding ratio and a funding ratio is one measurement in the health of a pension plan. It's your plan assets divided by plan liabilities. Government accounting uh, practices recommend that a pension plan have a 100 percent funding ratio at all times. Um, But unfortunately, even by our measurements, the best funded state, Wisconsin, is only funded at 56.26 percent, just a little over 56 percent, which and everybody else is is pretty dangerously low. Um, But as you'll see, as you'll see over, you know, the past decade, we looked at we also look at changes in funding ratios from fiscal years and the state pension fund that grew the most in funding ratio uh, was Alaska. And so the health of that, that is in part thanks to the reforms that they made in the early 2000s that really helped increase that funding ratio. And if the defined benefit plan were reopened and they scrapped the current system that they have, all of that progress being made, all of those plan funds that were, you know, all of those promises, all that stuff would be undone by reopening the defined benefit plan. Looking at that funding ratio map that is figure three, table three on page four, is it accurate to think that number 50 in this chart, New Jersey with an 18% funding ratio is the least fiscally responsible, the least stable of the states, and Wisconsin with 56 and a quarter is the most? Is that a, is that a fair way to look at that? Um, you know, yeah, I would say, like, there definitely is difference in, in fiscal responsibility. And, you know, part of that really is due to the reforms, say, you compare Wisconsin and New Jersey. Um, part of that is are the reforms that Wisconsin made uh, about a decade ago under the Wisconsin state legislature and then uh, under then Governor Scott Walker. Uh, you know, those the, those cost and, you know, those cost and risk sharing measures have really helped keep the keep pension funds relatively solvent. Specifically, um, there was a cost there was a cost sharing measure where the actuarially determined contribution, the ADC, which is um, the contribution the state has to make every year in order to uh, help pay down a certain percentage of of existing unfunded liabilities and to pay what's called the normal cost for the year. Um, You know, that number, how much the state has to pay each year is determined in part by the investment returns of you know, of the pension fund. And in years where there are lower investment returns, the state has to pay more money or taxpayers have to pay more money. And in states where the investment returns are higher, 
you know, that contribution requirement is a bit lower. And so by with the cost sharing reforms enacted in Wisconsin about a year ago, um, that uh, that contribution payment is split by taxpayers and public employees. So it gives public employees the skin sort of skin in the game in the game that's needed where they pressure, you know, they it places an extra pressure on uh, the state pension fund managers to invest responsibly and to, you know, to kind of keep their investments prudent and, you know, with predictable investment returns comes stability, comes, you know, predictable contributions year over year. And, um, you know, that and several other reforms have really helped Wisconsin stay, you know, keep, you know, keep its number one funding status. And I would say, you know, the reforms that were made in Wisconsin a decade ago are needed, you know, in many other states, New Jersey included. What role do these migrations that we have seen because of our changing demographics, the aging population, as well as the fast pace of moving that has taken place during COVID, all of this has been changing the face of the country in many unexpected ways. Have you looked at that in this report? You know, that actually, that's a great question. And, you know, it's something where, you know, we look at every year as, you know, we look at migration changes, um, you know, not just from the IRS tax migration data. Um, we also look at, you know, say, you like different moving companies issue that data. And um, we track uh, we track domestic migration. Um, in our other report, Rich States, Poor States, also published, um, also published by Alec, and uh, looking, and that looks at the economic performance and the out and outlook of the fifty states, and we track that um, domestic, uh, that domestic migration from uh, the IRS very, you know, very closely. And what we found is that, you know, this is it's important that like people are moving out of high tax states like California and out of the Northeast. You know, that means really um, what that really means is that states like California, which have these large unfunded liabilities, can't just, you know, raise taxes to cover the cost of these growing unfunded liabilities because, you know, people are moving out. California, for you know, the first time, I believe, in its history, lost a congressional seat because of how many people moved out in 2020. You know, they can't just rely on people always being there to tax. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned with Alaska, you know, that's an unfunded liability burden that's spread out over relatively few residents. That's going to happen in these high tax states that people are moving out. And, you know, even people who are retiring, um, they want to retire to places like Florida and, um, you know, the Carolinas. And it's they're looking for this kind of, you know, a good mix of really like low, t relatively low tax burdens. And of course, you know, the weather helps as well, but, you know, people really, you know, they want to move where it's an affordable place to live, where they can, you know, they can grow their families and high tax states, you know, people are feeling pressured to leave. And, you know, as these growing unfunded liabilities continue to grow, people move out of state, you know, more and more people move out and, 
there just are not, you know, there just aren't taxpayers to tax anymore. And that's kind of the, the trouble you saw with Detroit. Like I remember at the, reading at the time of uh, the Detroit bankruptcy in 2013, even back then, at the time there was a, a statistic mentioned that for every one person paying into the Detroit pension system, there were five people withdrawing a payment. And so for, you know, with that kind of, you know, that kind of difference strains a pension system. And so, you know, there aren't enough people paying into the system and the people that are promised a benefit, you know, don't have a fully funded retirement. And, and at the same time, you know, it's like taxpayers are leaving and fewer, fewer taxpayers are shell are having to shoulder a larger and larger burden. That makes me think of figure six, table six on page seven, where you look at the unfunded liabilities as a percentage of the gross state product. So with these changes that we're talking about, the migration and remote workers, how do you analyze that data? Because you can have people who are living in states and yet they're receiving their income because of retirement that's not being generated in the state or because they're remote workers. Um, did you look at that? Yeah, that's a great question. We, you know, we sort of look at, we looked at it as the numbers that were produced, say, by the Bureau of Economic Analysis um, and compared that to the unfunded liabilities. And remote work is, remote work is an interesting, um, is sort of a very interesting thing where, Actually, I'm, you know, I'm one of the people who uh, I moved from outside of the D.C. area and uh, we moved to Indianapolis because, you know, lower cost of living, lower taxes than Northern Virginia. And also um, my wife's family is, is here in Indiana as well, which was uh, which was uh, another attraction. Um, but as far as, you know, as far as, say, remote work, at least from my understanding, from where I'm sitting, the work that I'm doing, I am being taxed as a citizen of Indiana, not necessarily in D.C. Um, and I believe I'd be I'd be contributing to Indiana gross state product, not necessarily Virginia's. Um, so, you know, I think that's a that's a great question, though. It's like I think with with remote work, you know, with with 2020 and, you know, people being you know, people being required to work from home. You know, they were trapped in these in these small apartments in large cities and they couldn't really leave the apartment. They said, you know, if I could work from anywhere, why am I paying all this money to work here when I can't really get out? And, you know, that that spurred a lot of people moving you know, to different parts of the country um, and contributing to the local economies there to the places that they were moving. Um and I think you'd like you you see that especially in places like Texas and Florida, that we're seeing these huge numbers in economic growth because people are moving. You know, maybe they're working remotely, where they're where the office is based in California. You know, but they're working and they're shopping and they're you know they're they're living their life in Texas or Florida. And many companies, even you know, even then, like you know, many companies are leaving places like California and New York and headed towards Texas and Florida. Like, I believe it was NASDAQ that moved from New York to Austin, Texas, I believe. And then um, Goldman Sachs actually came down to Florida by you guys. And um, 
so now those businesses are, you know, that counts as Florida's economic growth. And it's, you know, it's not New York's anymore. One thought that comes to mind as we're discussing remote work is sort of the other side of that coin. The workers that are coming in virtually from outside the country, so they're earning a revenue from U.S. companies, but they're actually based in geographic locations where the salaries are much lower, and yet at the same time it means those jobs are not going to Americans. How does that play into the report, if it does at all? Was that something that you looked at? Um, you know, that's a little bit outside of the scope of our report. We mostly look at public pensions, and that affects state government employees. So normally it's, you know, those, you know, people working and collecting a, you know, co being qualified to collect a particular state's pension means that they are, um, they are a resident of that state. Um, you know, I think that's a very interesting, it's an interesting, uh, you know, that's an interesting situation. It does pose that, you know, people working outside of the U.S., but then for U.S. companies, um, I'm not particularly well versed in the tax law there and how somebody would be taxed, you know, even though they're working in another country, but uh, working for a firm that's headquartered in the United States. Um, I'm not particularly well versed on that, uh, on the specific tax law there, but I think it does, you know, it does sort of pose an interesting problem where um, these high tax, to get back to it, the, the high tax states where people say, you know, maybe it's not worth, you know, maybe, you know, maybe we're better off trying, trying, you know, to make it work somewhere else, whether that's a low tax state or a country that has lower taxes, you know, at the end of the day, that just it shows that states cannot just tax as much as they want to cover the no, just to cover these growing unfunded liabilities. Are they legally allowed to increase taxes in any way they choose? Are there parameters? Is this going to come, for example, is this going to be this? weight going to be shouldered by property owners? How does that work? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think and it depends on what type of pension fund and, you know, where the funding sources come from, like, say, education spending, um, that, you know, that comes from local property taxes. So um, I'd, I'd see, I could see how, you know, that would come in, like, say, to fund certain, say, education education retirement systems that would be that would come out of property taxes um but you know i think in other areas that might come from income taxes or a portion of sales taxes um you know and then even you know i think even you know especially some states like i i keep coming back to illinois there was a bill that was proposed a couple years ago that uh wanted to tax private retirement benefits to directly fund public pensions, which of course, you know, with that bill, that act, that, you know, certainly, that certainly gave, um, that gave retirees in Illinois second thoughts about staying in the state. Like if, you know, they had a private 401k that they had earned in the private sector and it was going to be directly taxed to fund public pensions, 
you know, they I could see how they would consider, you know, moving out, you know, even if it's just a neighboring Indiana or if, you know, they were following like many others down to Texas or down to Florida or the Carolinas um, as well. Are you seeing trends as you look at these reports over time? Is there evidence that a lot of people are changing state in order to get away from some of these obligations? Is this something that's top of mind for anyone? Um, you know, actually, there was a so I would say it's definitely a it's a it's a holistic approach. It's people aren't just specifically looking at unfunded liabilities, but in the way that unfunded liabilities represent future tax burdens. Uh, Warren Buffett actually had a great quote about that a couple of years ago where he said, you know, it's like if I were moving, I would consider these unfunded liabilities in the 50 states. You know, I wouldn't want to live in a place that had high unfunded liabilities because that translates into future tax increases. Um, so when people think, you know, they're thinking holistically about like, you know, what are my tax, what are the, what's my tax burden now? And am I getting, you know, the most bang for my buck from, you know, high taxes? Am I seeing the quality of public services that I want to see, you know, sort of baked into that cost are these unfunded liabilities and, you know, unfunded liabilities, the, the more and more they grow, you know, as, as I mentioned, the more and more they grow, the more and more, um, the, the spending on unfunded liabilities will crowd out spending on other public services. Um, so people will see tax burdens increase, but you know they're not seeing a same match in the amount or quality of public services that they're getting. It's just you know they're seeing their costs go up, but they're noticing potholes in the road. You know maybe education. You know they'd like to see more spending in education, but. And they wonder, where is this money going? And, you know, in many such cases, there are, uh, you know, it's going to pay down these unfunded liabilities. What comes to mind, comes to mind discussing is that, is that, that is I just article, saw an article was last week, was last week that, that said that Los, Los Angeles, Angeles and San Francisco, San Francisco Associated Press article, press article, are the raddiest cities in the country. In the country. And ratty in this is literally the cities that have the most uncontrolled rat population population in the country. And coincidentally, and coincidentally, they're both in, they're both in a state in with a state very high, very high unfunded, unfunded pensions. Pension. Do you think that you this, think is, a this is a sign of, of this, of this we're talking about? we're talking about? I think definitely it is a, yeah, it most certainly is. I hadn't heard that s statistic about the rats, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I believe it. Um, you know, I think that is, that is a sign of these things. It's, you know... It's you're you're seeing the you're seeing the fiscal strain that this debt places on cities, counties, on state governments, and you know that's that's sort of the bad news that it's going to it is a massive strain on these state governments, on state budgets, on county budgets. But the good news is is that there is a way forward, and there is a way to keep the promises that were made to these public employees and to taxpayers, and it starts with reform. 
you know, it starts it starts with enrolling new hires and that defined contribution system, like I had mentioned, like in Alaska, like in Oklahoma, um, like the state employees plan or the teachers plan in Michigan that, you know, you get automatically enrolled in a defined contribution system. Um, and on top of that, too, it's like some of the, the reforms made in Wisconsin and similar reforms were also made in Maine a couple years ago that have really helped reduce unfunded liabilities there. And on top of that, too, you know, we also talk about a little bit this, a little bit of this in the report. It's uh, we also talk about the dangers of politically motivated investments. Um, you know, so we'd say states like California specifically, um, which use their pension funds, these large, some of the largest pension funds in the in the country, um, use them to make political statements of their investments. Say they divest. You know, they divest 20 years ago, it was divest from tobacco and then it was divest from firearms. And throughout you know, the course of its history, it's also they've said, you know, invest in green technology or divest from fossil fuels. And by making these political, you know, these investments based on politics, it's really increased the volatility of investment returns. You know, the the highs are the highs are decent, but the lows are even lower than states that just invest based on, you know, based on getting the best return at a reasonable level of risk. And we looked at that quite a bit. And um, you'll see that at table eight, figure nine on page 10, where the average year over year investment return versus the average assumed investment return, the average assumed investment return is basically a straight horizontal line and it's a yellow dotted line. But the average investment return, you know, it looks like the blueprint for a roller coaster. Um, you know, it's you're getting high swings and you're getting low dips. And when you break that down state by state, which we have in a uh, in a public in two public comments submitted to the Department of Labor, which you can view on alec.org, um, as well as as well as several other reports, you can view that on alec.org, where you know I take you take a year like 2008. Everybody took a hit in 2008, but you see that losses sustained in California are greater than those of, you know, say Tennessee, which their investment philosophy is simple. They want the best return at a reasonable level of risk, you know, no changes. And you see Wisconsin after the reforms that investment returns after the reforms made in 2011 really the investment returns are not as volatile as they were prior to the reforms being made. And uh, in addition, Alec, as, as I mentioned, is a, um, a 501c3 nonpartisan educational organization. And we offer model policies publicly available um, to educate on, you know, to educate on various issues, one of which being sound pension reform. And this model policy uh, is called the State Government Employee Retirement Protection Act. And what that what that model policy shows is, you know, um, is how political divestments endanger pension funds and the best ways, best practices to um, to mitigate against that and the kind of strong fiduciary rules. So fiduciaries are people that are in charge of managing a pension plan who it's not their retirement savings so these are pension plan managers 
and you know how these strong rules apply and how to not allow pensions for for being to be used to further various political causes what are the sources of funding of alec you were talking about uh, politics and partisan issues so where does the funding that alec relies on for this work and to publish these reports and recommendations where does it come from is it the private sector is it public funding uh we are so we are a nonpartisan uh 501c3 we are a, part, a nonpartisan 501c3 nonprofit organization um, you know we're not getting funding from you know from specific areas we do we do earn grants and um, we have a are to be an Alec member we have uh, Alec memberships in which membership dues help in part fund the research that we're doing but no, we don't, you know, we're not given a specific, um, you know, we're not, we're not given specific funding for, you know, to further a specific agenda. We're all about education. And, you know, we use this, we use this opportunity for research to educate the general public, you know, both public sector members and private sector members. And we make our research publicly available uh, for people to learn more about this issue. It's it's a bit of a niche issue. Public finance is, is a complicated area. And we, our goal here is to first and foremost educate on this issue um, and to help, you know, to help the general public make sense of very complicated issues. We're seeing, again, among these demographic trends in the country, large numbers of Americans that are changing venues, as you were saying earlier. I think the number that I saw in print recently was 10,000 companies have left California in the last, I think it was five years. And another number that I saw somewhere was that 6% of Americans are now living overseas. Are you seeing evidence of any of that in these views that you're taking, that you're looking? Are these liabilities playing a role in any way in these migrations? Um, yeah, so as I mentioned before, it's, you know, maybe most people aren't thinking explicitly about these unfunded liabilities, but it is baked into the cost of taxes. And, you know, one of the primary drivers that get people either to stay, you know, to move to one place or to move out of another place in, in the United States, at least, are the taxes. You know, taxes matter. And the cost of, you know, the taxes are, dramatically affect cost of living. To learn more about that, I really encourage you to check out our, and for all the listeners out there, to check out Rich States, Poor States are the annual report, the Alec Laffer annual report on economic performance and economic outlook of the 50 states. You know, that's, that's available in PDF and there is also an interactive website, uh, richstatespoorstates.org, that really does a deep dive into that issue. And of course here, you know, we also take all of that from rich states, poor states into consideration 
when we're examining trends in unfunded liabilities and, you know, considering how, you know, how does this affect people's decision on where to live, where to work, you know, where they would like to grow their families and, you know, taxes certainly play a huge part in that. What does the title refer to in that report? So the title itself is unaccountable and unaffordable. What specifically is that? Certainly. So that um, uh, that title that title came out from some of the original authors of the report. Uh, one of which was our friend Bob Williams, um, who spearheaded this report series. Uh, Bob unfortunately passed away last March, but. Uh, you know, our goal with this report is to, you know, ensure those lessons that Bob had, Bob had taught and those contributions um, to government accounting continue to reach future generations. And, you know, one of the initial problems that Bob and our original co-authors faced in this report was a lack of transparency. Um, you know, it's in, in many cases, 10, 15 years ago, when looking at unfunded liabilities, they were maybe a footnote in the annual financial reports of states, like states really didn't have to report on this. And it's only really been in the last decade that many of these unfunded liabilities and the, and the deep details that are available today really have only become available through changes in government accounting practices in the past 10 years. So, you know, that was the the unaccountable part was, you know, it really showed a lack of transparency. And, you know, well, of course, things aren't perfect now. You know, there's certainly been a huge improvement of the past 10 years. And, of course, the unaffordable part reflects the cost, thousands of dollars, nearly $100,000 on average for every, for a family of four in the United States. And, you know, that burden, unfortunately, is is growing. For listeners who are looking to make decisions whether to stay, whether to move, and maybe want to take this into account among the many issues that someone might take into account when they decide where to live or where to retire, where to make their career work remotely, what would you say are the top three most desirable states from the perspective of today's discussion? Oh, certainly. I would say, you know, right up there is our Florida. I would say Texas. Texas was a big one. Um, Florida, Texas, um, and I would say Tennessee. I could also, you know, I'd also throw in North Carolina there um, as well. And there are a number of other states, but I guess I, I would say top three, maybe um, Florida, Tennessee, Texas. Um, but of course there are several, there are several other states that, um, you'd see in the IRS data, which is interesting, you know, Oregon became a state to move to and as well as Vermont. And that, that really has to do with the location of, of say tax, of tax policy. You know, although on our rich states, poor states ranking, Oregon and Vermont didn't necessarily rate, uh, very highly on, in those, in that report. Oregon and Vermont have neighbors like California and New York, and when you're when you have a neighbor like California and New York, people will want to move to you because you seem like the more affordable option. And yet, for example, Vermont is a very expensive state to live in because their taxes are very high. Isn't that right? 
Oh yeah, it is. It's an expensive state, but it is not as expensive as New York, and I think that's the that is the uh, the that's where I would place the emphasis in that statement. Not as expensive as New York, and so, that's why people are willing to move there. So it's a matter of balance: what quality of life you want and how much you're willing to spend. If I understand Absolutely. correctly. Absolutely. Tom, thank you for joining us from Indianapolis, Indiana. Thank you very much for having me today. And to our audience, you have been listening to Thomas Savage, who is Research Manager at the Center for State Fiscal Reform at the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, who discussed unfunded public pension liabilities in the 50 states. To propose a guest for the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.